Mm, it's interesting. The oh, I said it. Oh, you said you said you're <laughs> trying to win yourself off. Yes, I've I've been trying very hard to uh, this episode to not say it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's that's what I say far too much on on Station Thirteen. Yeah, that's very interesting. Should we start with follow up? Okay. I wanted to address a comment that I didn't get time to properly respond to on Reddit. Oh, yeah. From one of our uh, friends of the show who has an excellent Reddit username, which is No Tamanegi, <laughs> which means Tamanegi is onion. So uh, he has no onions. No onions. But he is a drummer. And uh, he's saying that uh, he's in the same camp as I in that he can remember, uh, sorry, I assume he, maybe she. They mm. can remember a time when it was physically impossible to do any kind of vocalizing while playing music. Mm. The same with me, you know, it's, it either had to be rhythm or moving the mouth and operating the vocal cords and, right. you know, never the two shall, shall meet. <laughs> when one was doing, the other one was just all chaotic. And so um, this he slash she basically went back to the woodshed and uh, bit by bit, practiced up the ability to, to do both at once and then and finally got over it. But it was uh, one interesting thing that um, No Tamanegi says is that, I'll just read off the, the comment on Reddit, it, said, it, brought, it also brought with it the tangible sense that I was actively carving new neural pathways in my brain, that I was linking two neural centers that weren't used to communicating with each other. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like you could actually have that feeling that... Yeah, that tangible sense. Because often you learn a new thing and it takes so long right. that you sort of, you don't quite know when you cross the threshold from not being able to do it to being able to do it. Right. But there are some things when you practice so intensely, you can almost feel exactly as they say, you know, new neural pathways being sort of formed in your mind. Mm. So I guess there's hope for me yet. Or maybe not. <laughs> You've just got to... Sit down and, and do it in, intensely. I think last time we talked about it as well, I brought up the, you know, I, I thought it was very difficult for drummers. I've met drummers who can do it before as well. Mm. And it is like absolute magic. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And pretty much all, I mean, there are, there are quite a few excellent bass players who sing as well. Like there's Otil Burbridge and there's, uh, let's see, Richard Bonner and there is uh, obviously Sting. Right. And I mean, there's, you, the, the list goes on. So it's definitely possible. You kind of, I guess, seeing people do it so comfortably like that, you sort of think that there must be something wrong with me that I can't do it. <laughs> However, you know, uh, these comments from No Tamanegi gives me hope that I can't do it now, but who's to know that, uh, say, Sting, for example, also didn't begin with a similar problem and just basically had to go back to the basics, playing scales and, and reading something or, you know. Right. I mean, I think it's, you know, every pianist struggles at first with doing the left and right hand at right. the same time, right? right? Right, yeah, that's right. It is amazing the way that musicians can divide their brains up into those different different components that are op operating seemingly independently because drummers obviously do it with their four limbs. Mm. And when you first sit down at a drum kit, when you're just sort of playing around, yeah, I can play drums, anybody can play drums, and you realise... Well, my arms can do it, but my legs aren't doing... Or everything's operating at the same time and I right, can't right. get my legs to do something different. And then, of course, you see you know, professional drummers or highly experienced drummers and, and they're amazing. Like all four limbs can just sort of operate completely independently. And right. another amazing example is my father, who is a uh, classical pipe organist. Mm. And a pipe, the, Yeah, pipe organs have got so many pedals and knobs and keys and... Right. <laughs> 
Right. So, yeah, basically he's reading music that has uh, three staves, mm. so treble, bass, and then pedal. Mm. And he's he's operating pedals with his feet, with both feet, and two hands, obviously, but often there'll be multiple, they call them manuals for, um, uh, for pipe organs, but those are the keyboards that you see in front of a pipe organist. Mm. And there'll be two, three, four, maybe sometimes even for very, very large organs, there'll be five, but I... I I assume most of them are around two to four. Mm. So you you have uh, different stops on the organ are assigned to different manuals, giving you different sounds on each keyboard. Mm. And so that way you may have one hand up here and one the other one down here, and then you have your legs doing something else. So you've got to be thinking about left hand, right hand, which keyboard you're playing, and your legs, your left leg, playing down there, your right leg taking over when the notes go up there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and reading. Do the legs usually, do the pedals usually play like a single sort of backing note, like the main no. uh, in, note of that? Or do you, do you play chords with them, maximum of two notes per chord, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, you, you will hear fifths and octaves, but mm. because they're so low, mm. the, the notes are so low in pitch, uh, it doesn't really make sense to be doing intervals other than basic fifths and octaves. Right. But... The really virtuosic organ music, uh, the German and French virtuosic organ music, has very, very complicated pedal parts as well right. that work completely independently to your uh, left hand. So it is basically three parts operating at the same time by four limbs. All right. That's that's cool. Actually, I'm, I'm suddenly realizing that I have loads of questions about the organ that I <laughs> never thought to ask. But those, those two to four, maybe five keyboards. Yeah. Do they cover the same range of notes? Are they just a different sort of timbre using different pipes or something, but covering essentially the same range? Do they cover 88 keys? Like, what is the story there? Uh, no, there's not 88 keys. There's less. Uh, depends on the organ, depends on the country, and it depends on the, the age of the organ. I don't actually know if there's a standard, but if just from memory, because I've seen a lot of organs, because I've been around uh, to a lot of churches with my dad as he plays and I, I used to do that a lot as a child sure I think it is five or six octaves mm. and they the, the keyboard itself it's kind of like a MIDI keyboard the keyboard itself is not assigned to specific pitches or notes by default mm. the stops that you pull out will decide what pitch that uh, what octave that they are playing oh I see right so that's what all those sort of knobs that are sticking out everywhere yeah that's for. right so when you uh, when you pull out one of those knobs that's called a stop uh -huh. which is where the fantastic uh, English expression pull the stops out pull out all the stops yeah oh, right is that from organ oh. yeah pull out all the stops basically means to turn on every pipe which makes a massive noise <laughs> a massive oh, noise. oh I see oh I always assumed it was to do with going quickly but it's more i suppose going all in that's right something. yeah so if you pull out all the stops on a pipe organ it is extremely loud right uh, basically the the every one of those the best way to think of it is the very very old-fashioned non-electronic the mechanical organs they'll have a, a a blower at the back which will be operated by electricity or by or by somebody mm. on the old really uh, old organs that i've seen uh, in germany with my father there is actually like a an area at the back for for the I don't know the plebeians to stand there and actually pump the organ right so that but you have to it's actually quite difficult to pump the organ because uh, if you do it with too much force and not evenly then it changes the pitch oh like like some wind instruments do that as well right where you you play twice as hard to do an octave up or something like that yeah exactly so anyway that air is basically being rooted to different 
pipes by the stops in front of the organist. Mm. So the organist will have, for example, on this manual, that's the name of the keyboards, they'll have this range of pipes that can be used for this one. Mm. And then maybe on the, on the right-hand side, there'll be this range of pipes that can be used for this manual. And they will select which stops that they want, which will select which, st- which pipes are being used. Uh, and every one of the pipes will have a different sound. So the different timbres, basically. Mm. So that depends on the pipe size, length, material. So there's wooden pipes as well as uh, metal pipes. Generally, the ones that you see at the front of the organ are all the metal ones because they look the most impressive. But uh, behind that is is um, a whole range of different kinds of pipes uh, uh, behind the facade of the organ. Mm. That's for achieving different kinds of timbres. And so depending on the music and the part of the music and what the composer was trying to achieve and also, of course, what the organist is trying to achieve, the organist will select different stops for different timbres, assign them, assign them, basically choose which manual has which timbre on it mm. and play like that. And then using the left hand and the right hand, they'll prepare before the music starts. They'll prepare, for example, on this manual will be this sound for this part of the music and on that manual will be that sound for this part of the music. Right. Uh, prepare it before they start. Right. And you may see, if you watch pipe organists play in larger more complicated pieces of music, you'll see them actually changing the stops as they go along. Mm. So it all has to be very carefully planned that, you know, at this part of the music, I need that sound here, so I'll just pull that up there. Right. And then that sound has to be here, over here. And the more um, modern organs have electronic systems that allow you to sort of store presets of sounds. Right. And right. you'll see sometimes it'll happen automatically when you're watching an organist play, you'll see and press a button with their thumb underneath the keyboard or something like that, mm. and all the stops will automatically kind of shift. Shift. Uh, oh, right. And that, oh, so they're still, s- even when it's automatic, they are still manually moving a sort of mechanical. <laughs> yes, that's thing, right. So there's no, there's no, uh, you know, touchscreen UI or anything like that for, right, right. for a pipe organ. It's all, they all are actually, on modern organs, obviously, the stops themselves are electronic, like there's a switch behind there, but on the traditional organs, it's actually a mechanical thing that you pull that. It pulls a wire which shifts, you know, a, a valve that moves the air from the, the blower from this side over to that side. Mm. And it, it's, it's just an amazingly complicated instrument. Oh, fascinating. And is it common in, in music, in, you know, musical notation and written music to specify that? Or is that usually left to the organist? Or is it sort of depends on the music? In the same way that with a play, for example... Shakespeare, for example, doesn't give much in the way of stage directions. He just tells you who's coming on and who's going off, whereas Tennessee Williams gives a huge amount of detail in every single action that everyone's doing. Mm. Is it a similar sort of thing to that, or how does that work? That is a question for my father, so I don't dare to answer that in case he's listening to this. (laughs) uh, um, I seem to recall that... uh, uh, I think I think there might be a mixture of both. So you'll get some situations, depending on the composer and the era, mm. there'll be some situations where the composer specifically specifies, you know, read sounds here or principal pipes here or, mm. you know, all the names of the... I mean, the pipe organ is essentially a very, very early synthesizer in that <laughs> every one of the stops, if you read them, they will say things like bassoon and oboe and flute and... They're sort of trying to approximate the sound of these actual instruments. Right. So in some of the music and some, with some composers, they will specify that, okay, this part should be this right. sound and that part should be that sound. Uh, on other kinds of music, it's not the case. And basically all you get are basic dynamics and cues for uh, 
the, the kind of feel, right. whether it's like gent, gently or powerfully or, you know. Right, right, right. And then uh, it's up to the organist's uh, interpretation and their own, you know, creative and artistic objectives to, to choose what sounds like. All right, cool. Well, maybe we should uh, leave the rest for future follow-up. <laughs> Alex's dad, if you want to jump on the Reddit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I can Maybe we can um, just drop in a, a mention here of two of my favorite organ composers just so that we can remember to put a link in the description so people can actually go and listen okay. to what you know amazing organ music can sound like obviously J.S. Bach from the Baroque period is um, mm. you know pretty much a go-to as far as wonderfully uh, how do you describe J.S. Bach I mean you know <laughs> The man. <laughs> but uh, definitely also, also it's worth having a listen to some of the uh, later French organ music. Mm. And uh, one specific piece of music that is probably my favorite piece of music for organ that I loved from a child when I heard, first heard my father play it and now listen to it every now and then when I want to be reminded of that, that um, amazing feeling of standing in a you know, in a church listening to a massive organ play it, mm. is by a composer called Gigu. And uh, Gigu is not spelt G-E-E-G-O-O. No. It's actually spelt G-I-G-O-U-T, like gigout. Okay. Gigu. Sounds appropriately French. Yes. Uh, Gigu's uh, Takata, I believe it is in C. There's only one of his Takatas, I think, that was really, really famous. Mm. <laughs> And I think it's in C. Okay. Uh, we can we can find a link later and, and post in the show notes. But uh, oh, that, yeah, no, that'll be interesting to look up because I don't think I've I've actually not listened to a lot of mm. organ music. Even Bach, I've mostly sort of heard a lot of his stuff that was written for harpsichord and stuff. But yeah, um, Gigu's Takata is really there's only one word to describe it, and this word is far far overused and uh, kind of a little bit. Uh, cliched and and has definitely lost a lot of its power now but the word really is epic mm. and when you listen to it you'll see what i mean it's like wow that's huge so we'll post we'll post a link to gigu's takata and you can have a listen but uh highly recommended for one of the world's rarer but uh highly fascinating instruments the pipe organ mm. there we go Links in the show notes so i also have some some reddit-based follow-up just very briefly yep on the subscription model that we talked about towards the end of last episode. Yes. Just we talked about sort of how some people had been upset by it and people were trying to find a way to sort of marry the subscription and and traditional product-based uh, models to try and get the advantages of the subscription without upsetting people too much. Yeah. But one thing we didn't talk about that uh, Charlie from A-Town FM, he posted on the Reddit, which I hadn't really thought to mention last time, which is that the subscription model enables a certain class of updates that have traditionally been discouraged, mm. which is small incremental updates and bug fixes and things like that. Mm. It's very hard to to use those sorts of updates to sell a new product. Right. So with the traditional non-subscription model, the the company making, you know, Adobe making Photoshop or whatever, they are encouraged to to push for big features that they can write on the back of the box that right. they can you know use to encourage people to buy the next version right and prioritize those over these small incremental changes mm. 
And Charlie, who is a subscriber to Adobe Creative Cloud, as, as are you, said that he really noticed the difference that when they switched to a subscription model, mm. they could focus a little bit more on stability and bug-related uh, issues. And, and he felt like that, that was a great improvement. So, so there is an upside to it as well. And I thought that was worth mentioning. Yeah, that is really interesting. And it's true, actually. I, like you said, I'd also never thought of that. But you know, when I think about Adobe Creative Cloud... I think that we as users are so used to the idea that an update equals new features, something new. And, you know, stability and speed and efficiency are things that you take for granted and that software should just do that. Right. You know, you know, if you buy software, of course you expect that it's going to work well and efficiently and without trouble. That's not the reality when you're dealing with with highly highly complicated you know programs, right? And and it doesn't come for free, even with simple programs, exactly. Right? Exactly. It costs a lot of time and effort to to make things stable and efficient. Exactly. And uh, yeah, actually, I'm thinking now, of course, of uh, my favorite Adobe software, favorite because it's pretty much the only one that I am able to use with any degree of competency, and that's Adobe Illustrator. Right. And I can remember that when you were going through the Creative Suite illustrators, you know, Creative Suite 1, 2, 3, mm. I started on Illustrator 8, and it went 8, 9, 10, and then Creative Suite 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and then uh, it's Creative Cloud. I, I believe that's right. But anyway, right. there was always this emphasis as they released new versions, like, oh, Creative Suite 3, Creative Suite 4, that there had to be these, like, new features. Mm. And Illustrator has sort of gotten to... A bit, a bit like Photoshop, you know, it's sort of gotten to the point where it's like, okay, all right, we've got enough features now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's starting to get very, very heavy and very sort of weighed down in its features, Right. even though, you know, when it comes to putting together, you know, um, a great layout for graphic design or doing game graphics or, or things like that, you know, you don't need that much of the extra features what you need is right. for the program to stop crashing <laughs> you know and, and corrupting your save files and things like that right and right. i think illustrator is probably less of a it's very interesting the way that adobe has has moved because uh, now there's it's almost like you can do most things in photoshop that you can in illustrator and, and almost most things in illustrator that you can in photoshop uh to a certain degree like you can access vectors in photoshop Mm. And in Illustrator, there's to a certain degree, there's uh, some control that you have over uh, bitmap right. editing and bitmap effects. Right. Not editing, but I say bitmap effects. And you can certainly create excellent bitmap art in Illustrator now because there has like, uh, you know, all these modes for uh, working to pixel resolution as opposed to working to infinite vector resolution for postscript. Right. And so the, the line between them is blurred so much now that it's almost like, oh, which one do you like? Oh, I like Illustrator. Oh, really? Well, I like Photoshop. Okay, let's go and do the same right. work. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, the sort of different interfaces converging on a similar point, right. I suppose. And I saw the other day somebody was tweeting, there's all these 3D features in Photoshop. Yeah. So not only can it do vector stuff, but you can actually describe 3D shapes exactly. and map textures onto them and it's sort of weirdly turning into a 3d package yeah and and on by the same token like i i mainly use i have uh, creative cloud but i mainly use illustrator mm. and i rarely ever have a need to use photoshop for anything because most of the basic things that i would need to do can be done in illustrator so right so so like 
on the one hand, new features are nice, although it does create this sort of soupy situation where your different products in the company sort of start to converge together. And now if somebody came to me and said, I'd, I'd like to make a logo, <laughs> what what software would you recommend? It's like, well, they can all kind of do it now. So just take your pick. Right. However, there's something to be said for new features. But, you know, when we look at um, specifically digital audio workstations, you know, DAWs are plagued by this expectation that new versions have to have new features. And right. an interesting example recently, sorry, I don't want to go on too long about this because I know we talked about DAW's last last episode when we were talking about Bitweek, but right. Ableton is another one of the big, big players in DAW's. And they've just released, a few days ago, they've released Live 10. Right. And Live is their flagship DAW product. Mm. And unlike Bitweek, which has that sort of pseudo subscription style, Ableton has a more traditional, you know, you pay for the update and you pay for a new version mm. and then you get sort of free updates as you go along until the next major version, at which point there are all these fancy new features or well, that's what people expect. And when Live 10 came out, basically it's an interface tweak. It's got a few, like the interface looks quite different and there's uh, some some improvements there, but it's, it's kind of light on the new features. It's more about workflow. Right. And obviously, you know, a lot of the user base are sort of complaining a lot because, you know, this is a new version. If we have to pay this much for an upgrade, why aren't there new things that we can be using that we can be benefiting from? Right. Which <laughs> I go back to my, my point from before, but, well, you don't have to pay for an upgrade. That's what you asked for, isn't it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. like you don't want a subscription model. It's like, well, okay, if you don't think the upgrade is worth it, don't pay for it. Yeah. And if that means that you end up with a sort of buggier, crashier version that doesn't have a smoother workflow, well, mm. that was your choice. Right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, Charlie's point about uh, subscription models allowing for sort of less feature-based updates and more stability and basically what most people want. Well, no, no. Right. Basically what, uh, what people complain the most about, oh, it's crashing all the time. I paid this much for this buggy software. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, that's that's definitely an interesting thought that, well, you know, if, if you wouldn't complain about them going to a subscription model, then maybe that would get you what you're after, which is this, you know, stable uh, tool instead of something that's highly functional but buggy. All right. So uh, so anyway, and uh, one, one more piece of follow-up from a, a couple of episodes ago, but I did say that I would... My New Year's resolution, I said I would go to the gym once by mid-February. Yes. Here we are, approaching mid-February. And I went yesterday, so that's one New Year's resolution in the bag. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you're sorted already, and it's like it's only the second month of, of the year, and you're... And you're I, I told you I'm good at this. On track. <laughs> you are on track. So so are you are you buff now? Are you swole? I, my one gym visit has made all the difference. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, it's made no difference at all. But it, it was good to see that, you know, it's my first gym experience in America. I mm. just went to the, the, you know, there's a place at work. So I just went there. Right. And they've got nice machines, fairly comparable with the place that I used to go to in Japan. Right. The, I think I mentioned, did I mention before when, you know, the, the place that I went to in Japan had very nice, you know, fancy gym equipment. It was a very nice place and all that. But they also had a sort of sauna area and... A, in Japan, public baths are like a, a thing. Right. So they've got a shared sort of public bath as well as individual showers. And a and one of those cold ice plunge things as well with, you know, cold water that you go into straight after the sauna. Right. 
Uh, and over the course of the months that I went to that gym, I found that the, the time that I spent in the gym using the equipment as compared to the time that I spent in the sauna and the nice bath relaxing mm. uh, shifted over the, the few months that I was going. <laughs> the, 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 ratio, right. the ratio was in the, flux. The ratio swung right. from about two-thirds in the gym and one-third in the bath to, well, the, probably the reverse of that right. <laughs> by the end. So at, at this place, uh, they have, you know, they've, they've got some of that. They've got saunas uh, and they've got, they've got like a, what they call a hot tub, I guess, like a jacuzzi type thing. Mm. Uh, but being, being America and, you know, Americans are a bit funny about getting their bits out. So the, you have to wear swimwear right to go into the into the the bath uh, jacuzzi mm, thing that's interesting which yeah is obviously quite quite different from japan did you go to onsen and center onsen are, uh hot springs with natural hot spring water and center is basically the same thing but artificial just a, a hot public bath but in japan you you know you treat them both as a bath you, you shower first before you go in and then you go in naked mm. Uh, did you did you used to do that in Japan? This will shock anybody who's ever been a tourist in Japan or who even has the most basic passing interest in Japanese culture and society. But actually, after living in Japan for 16 years, mm. I went to an onsen the grand total of one time. Oh, really? Right at the end? And basically at the end with, with my, um, at that stage, uh, my toddler son and uh, mm. my wife. And I didn't enjoy it. To be honest, oh, really? it was um, uh, it was so hot mm. that after about five minutes, I started to get quite a bad headache. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I got out and and realized that I must have been perhaps dehydrating from sweating too much or something. I don't know. Yeah. So I drank a whole bunch of water, and yeah. that the head headache didn't really pass for the next few hours. It just sort of felt very uncomfortable. And yeah, well, you got to be careful. But I I think it's unfortunate that that was that was your first experience i do know what you mean i have sort of experienced that but it's not that's not a thing that's definitely going to happen okay i think you do need to make sure to be well hydrated mm. before you go and also when you're finished you should drink afterwards as well right right uh, and also it can take a bit of getting used to like the managing it almost right like you don't tend to just get in the bath and then sit there for half an hour right and then leave like you you sort of i find at least i'm sort of constantly adjusting i mean often they'll have lots of different baths right with yeah. different things like they'll have the main bath and then they'll have an outdoors one and they'll have one with little electric shocks that go through you that are supposed to be good in some way right. not a big fan right <laughs> literally they are they are blasting electricity into uh, a bath in which you are sitting <laughs> right and, you know, and they'll have jacuzzi type things and, and all sorts of things that massage different sort of areas of your body. Mm. Uh, so, you know, sometimes by moving between these, you get a bit of a break as you're standing up and moving from one place to the other. Mm. But also you, even, you know, in, in when there's just one main bath, you know, you sit in there immersed for like maybe five minutes and then you'll you'll re just sit up on the edge and just have your feet in the bath and the rest of you out of the water for a few minutes. Right. And you're sort of constantly like, I think there is a bit of a knack to getting a feel for how it's affecting your body and, and how you're feeling and whether you you want to take a break or whatever. Right. But it can be a really pleasurable experience when you've, when you've kind of got the knack. Mm. Yeah. In my case, 
I was in there for five minutes, started to get quite a bad headache and thought, okay, I think I probably should get out now mm. and got out and started to feel quite dizzy. So I thought, all right, I think I'll probably stop here. So that's sort right. Of- yeah, no, and that's a sensible thing to do in that in that case. I yeah. think you, you definitely did the right thing given that maybe you weren't fully hydrated when you started. Right. But if you get another opportunity, I say don't don't discount it yet. Okay. Uh, because it, it can be a very nice thing. And also, I think for someone like you as well, it, it's quite well suited. But I've had some great conversations with random old Japanese men in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you meet sort of all sorts of different people right, right? right generally all the people from that area are sort of going to to that particular bath or if you're if you're in like a resort then you're meeting people from all sorts of areas that have come to the resort to to experience it right so you can meet a whole variety of different people that you wouldn't usually meet and the fact that you're all sort of sitting naked in a bath together is a great equalizer right you know? <laughs> right and yeah i i i think it's a it's just sort of it's Maybe feels a bit weird when you first do it, but it's a it's a great place to have a conversation. I mean, between that and sort of old like old man pubs, as I used to call them in in England, but you know, bars full of right old men. <laughs> I think they're, they're great great places to sort of just meet random people and and have conversation. And in the in the sauna in the gym that I went to, they always had the sumo on in the corner, <laughs> and so I'd end up. And I always went before work, so I'd be going like seven in the morning, right do my requisite five minutes of exercise or whatever right and then <laughs> and then go and have a shower and get in the sauna and just spend ages just chatting with these old men about what's going on in the sumo it was great the, the mind boggles like what it would be like in one of these old british pubs if you walked in and everybody was naked except for a towel over their bits like how yeah i should i should be clear that the, the old man pubs and the being naked are different stories <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah, you wonder like how would, you, you go into an old man's pub and you sit down with a beer and, and you strike up a conversation with the guy next to you. Like if he was naked and you were naked and you had a towel over your bits and it was really hot, that's essentially what, without the beer, right? that's essentially what we're talking about. Uh, so, yes. So, I mean, yes. Context is king yeah. in this case, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um yeah, that's uh, that's good to know about uh, onsens because, of course, uh, it's it's definitely up there with one of the um, uh, more popular things that uh, people enjoy doing when they go to visit Japan, along with climbing Mount Fuji and shopping in Tokyo and uh, eating a lot in Osaka and uh, right. uh, seeing monkeys in hot springs in Nagano. I think was one of the other ones that <laughs> tourists like. Or, Red leaves in the autumn and all that stuff. Yeah. Sakura in the crossing a road in Shibuya. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the famous road. All the all the all the fascinating things Japan has to offer. Crossing yeah. a road, having a bath. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I also wanted to. Uh, sorry, I'm, I apologize for taking this back to music, but uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of an update on my uh, band exploits because uh, on Monday. Mm. which was a few days ago from this recording, I uh, went to the first practice for this uh, band group that I'm in. Oh, yeah, yeah. You said that was coming up. How did that go? Did you meet all 100 people? Do you remember their names? Yeah, so, okay. Slow (laughs) slow down, slow down. Uh, So, yeah, we were there to... It was a two-hour practice, and basically it was a choir practice, so specifically a practice for the choir. However, the choir master had asked the guitarist and myself, the bassist, to come along and accompany uh, just to 
you know, uh, just to provide a little bit of extra support for the choir. Sure. There were 100 people. And so basically I went in, there was a stage, and on the stage there was a guitarist and a bass amp, and uh, I was on the stage and the choir master was next to us at, at a piano. And then down in the main area there were seats with 100 singers mm. all looking at the stage. <laughs> it was a bit funny because, you know, <laughs> Uh, it's not the, of course, not the first time that I've been on a stage with people looking at me, but definitely the first time that I've been on stage with people looking at me when I'm not actually doing anything. Because a lot of the time, in this case, it was sort of standby because we were waiting as the choir master was helping, you know, individual parts in the choir. Right. Uh, with right. it, uh, so <laughs> it was kind of hard to know where to look because if I looked out. Then there's like a hundred eyes looking back at me. <laughs> so I kind of tend to looking at people's shoes and looking at my music and looking at the bass and looking at the floor. And so that was a bit funny. However, what I wanted to talk about, this was quite a special experience because the sound, when you're on stage in front of a hundred people singing at you mm. at fairly close proximity. Now, this is it, this is Obviously, not the first time I've heard a choir and not the first time I've I've sung in a choir. I didn't sing this time, but like I know what choirs are about. Right. This this was something pretty remarkable. And I was I wanted to tell you about this because there's a there's a discussion behind this too. So when the choir sang together, it was absolutely mesmerizing. And I it took me a while to work out why it sounded the way that it did. And I was reminded of one of the famous quotes about Abba, where the two ladies of Abba, Anna Frida and Agneta, mm. they, the tone of their voices, one of them has a slightly higher voice and the other one has a slightly lower voice. Mm. One of them is a bit more full-bodied and the other one is a bit more nasal. And when they sing together, there's a certain quality to the mixture of their voices that you can hear is very distinctive when you listen to any song by Abba. Mm. And it's fairly well known in mixing circles that uh, the combination of those two women's voices is is one of the more um, special combinations of voices in music recording because they complemented each other so perfectly that on a recording it just creates this mysterious, phasey, kind of soupy, creamy sound Mm. which is very, very unique. And I have some other examples of that, but that's part of the discussion that I wanted to raise with you. But coming back to the choir, so in front of 100 voices, when they sang together and in harmony, it was mesmerizing. Again, like that, like the sound that Abba had, it was kind of this weirdly, uh, again, creamy is really the only word that I can think to describe it. And during the break, I approached the choir master and she said, oh, you know, thanks for coming and... Uh, and I said, uh, uh, this is absolutely incredible. I've never really heard anything like this before. It's like this kind of soupy, creamy sound. Mm. And she said, yeah, actually, you know, Swedish choirs are quite well known for their unique sound because... Oh, really? Yeah, because there is something to do with Swedish pronunciation and the way that it uh, forms a person's voice and the voice that they get used to using mm. that creates this rather unique kind of tone and she did it for me being a singing teacher she can do it it was kind of <laughs> like this 
I, I don't know. It was kind of like, eh, kind of like the sort of nasally tone. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That that was I can see why you were so creamy, blown away by it. Creamy, mesmerizing, <laughs> soupy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so she um, she did it for me. She said, "Yeah, you know, Swedish people have this funny tone in their voice, and it sounds like this. Eh, and it, and when you put it all together." <laughs> Like when when they're singing with that overtone in there, mm. it creates it creates this unique sound. And amongst choir circles, these kinds of large scale Swedish choirs become very popular around Europe because of this unique sound. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. We went back to the practice, and then as they sang again, because the choir was practicing. And bear in mind, this is an amateur choir, right? So these are not professional singers. These are basically people there. Uh, singing purely for the enjoyment of it and also for the experience of participating in this kind of large concert, which is what this is aiming up towards. Sure. Even though they're amateurs, sometimes the tuning, you know, the, the intonation was a little bit off, but once they hit it, it was this amazing kind of consistent, phasey, phasey tone, really. The only kind of equivalent I can think of is sort of effects in, uh, in digital audio world or sorry, right, in right. Like audio production world, like, you know, certain yeah. kinds of chorus effects or or uh, flange effects that can create this kind of really unique sound. It occurred to me when I thought a bit more than about ABBA, there are a number of bands where you can actually hear this sound. Mm -hmm. And I have two to give you. Uh, And in both cases, these are bands where the musicians are brothers and sisters. Mm. So that maybe then is... I don't know, potentially some kind of connection there that obviously your siblings are fairly, fairly likely to have a similar toned voice as you. Right. Fairly likely. And the the two bands that I can think of, uh, aside from ABBA, one of them is an amazing, amazing Irish folk group called Clanad. Oh, yeah. One of my um, uh, absolute favorites, especially in the sort of 70s, it was folk music. In the 80s, they uh, moved more more towards a sort of a pop sound mm. uh, and they did uh, the soundtrack of a great uh, British action series from the 80s called Robin of Sherwood. <laughs> they also did the soundtrack for The Last of the Mohicans mm-hmm. and another game, another movie called Harry's Game. Mm. And do you know uh, the ambient singer Enya? Yes, of course. Yeah, so Enya is the younger sister of this group of four or five brothers and sisters who form Clan Ed. Oh, right. I didn't realize that. I, I, I know Enya, obviously, and I have sort of heard of Clan Ed, but I didn't realize there was a relation between them. Yeah, so um, Clan Ed is a bunch of sisters and brothers, and they also have this capability that when they all sing together, it sounds kind of like a synthesizer. I mean, it's like, again, this sort of very, very uh, consistent creamy kind of sound Mm. the other band which uh may come to some surprise but actually when you think about it is also in this category is the Bee Gees Mm. so the Bee that is not what I was expecting you to say yeah so the Bee Gees (laughs) yeah the Bee Gees are also three brothers and of course they're most famous for uh their falsetto singing and you know um uh 70s and 80s disco music like uh, Saturday Night Fever and Mm. uh and all that but uh, if you listen to the three of those three brothers singing at the same time, mm. in their falsetto voices or not, because mm. they also have very similar voices. They they get that same effect mm. where th- their voices just sort of mesh together so perfectly that uh, it just creates this very, very unique, interesting sound. That's, that's interesting. Can you think of a, a song of theirs that sort of demonstrates that in particular? Or? Let's see. 
No, I have to go back and listen. Probably How Deep Is Your Love, perhaps, which is oh, yeah. which is a yeah, ballad song. Uh, yeah. I can't recall whether or not that song has much harmony singing or whether it's because it's, mm. uh, it's most well-known for its, you know, the main melody sung by uh, sung by Barry, I think was his name. Anyway, yeah. have you ever heard this with voices where it's clear that, okay, that's a little bit unique. That's That sound is, there's got to be something behind that. It's not just a case of two people singing together and, Slapped on some of you know chorus effects in post production. Right. Have you ever heard that in any of the music that you enjoy? Um, I definitely know what you mean. So I I have heard it, and I can sort of envisage in my mind that the effect that you're talking about. Mm. But I can't actually think of a specific example of of bands that take take advantage of that. Right. Yeah. Tone of tone of voice is uh, a fascinating thing, and there's. You know, we when we think about language, we think about pronunciation primarily. However, mm. tone of voice and the, the the actual voice that you have, everybody's voice sounds different. Mm. And the, the tone of voice that you have actually goes a long way to making your pronunciation in a foreign language that much more convincing. Right. And, you know, a fine example I can remember of this was when I lived in China when I was, I was studying Mandarin Chinese there. I tended to find that people who naturally had a more nasally voice mm. when they spoke in Chinese, assuming that all people spoke with the, with a um, the exact same level of accuracy with their pronunciation, mm. you would get some people that would sound, wow, that, that pronunciation is perfect. And of course, Chinese is a tonal language, so it's going up and down. Right. Uh, and the actual pronunciation of the vowels and the consonants, it's all just perfect. However... That is without a doubt a Westerner speaking Chinese, or like a foreigner right. speaking Chinese. Right, right. Whereas on the other hand, you would get some people, and I used, as I said, I, f- I found it tended to be people with a more nasally voice mm. who would be speaking and it would sound absolutely perfect, like mostly native. Mm. And I kind of wondered whether there is a case for just basically having a voice that's more suited to this language because, in general, <laughs> in general, you know, people who speak this language have a, this kind of voice, and right. if you ha- if you have that kind of voice, it's easier. Or, or whether that's even something you you can develop, right? Because you know, we think about the the differences in pronunciation and getting used to vowel sounds we don't have in our native language, and and learning to roll our R's for certain languages, and when we don't do that in our own native language or whatever, mm. and also intonation and Japan's pitch accents and Chinese's right. tones and and stress in other languages. And those are all things that we're taught very explicitly and we think about. But you're right that that sort of tone, not in the sense of Chinese tones, but in in the sense of how full-bodied your voice is, how nasal it is, how deep it is, that is something that is not really often taught and is taken to be just a, a property of your voice. And to some extent, it probably is. But I think there is an extent to which it can be trained. I mean, I know that my voice is quite different in in Japanese and English. I think it's still recognizably the same voice, but I, I do think I tend to talk, I talk a lot more quietly in Japanese. Mm. Uh, and I think at a slightly higher pitch, probably. Mm. I think that's that a lot of that is down to a confidence that still even now, although I'm fairly comfortable talking in Japanese, probably because I've always been in the habit of it, that early habit 
of talking much more hesitantly mm. and in a quieter voice and sort of always with a question mark at the end because I want to make sure the other person has understood what I've said and stuff like that. I think to some extent that habit has stuck. And so it's resulted in, in I think I have a different sort of tone of voice in Japanese to English. And perhaps if that had been something I'd explicitly worked on, that, that could contribute to sounding more native, as you say. When you speak multiple languages, having your voice change between those languages, that's very common and it's a mystery as well, isn't it? Mm. I, I wouldn't like to imagine why, because it's definitely true. I mean, when I speak English, my well, I should say, when I speak the foreign language, which to me is Japanese, mm. my voice goes lower. Yes. I was about to say, I've noticed that about you. Yeah. And when I speak English, it's higher. And I can also, one of my colleagues that I work with who is Swedish, she speaks, when she speaks English, her voice is higher. When she speaks Swedish her voice is quite a bit lower. Mm. And like why why that could come to be that way is is it something to do with basically you have the target sound that you're going after when you're learning a language and at that moment mm. you your vocal cords is trying to figure a way, figure out how to actually achieve that sound and it finds that the easiest way to do it is with this and that arbitrarily could be a higher voice or a lower voice it just happens to be possibly what your voice gets used to when it's training perhaps yeah it could be i mean it could and it could partly be just what you've picked up the particular places that that you learn from mm. the particular things that you're that you're listening to or it could be a confidence thing like i said mm. uh, with the japanese uh actually so as another example and and this also is a sort of convenient segue into another thing I was thinking of talking about. But with Spanish, which is a, a language that I've sort of on and off tried to learn for for many, many years and not really gotten very far with. But I find I, I have yet to test this in proper conversation, talking Spanish with Spanish people, because I've not really done that so much. But when I'm just reading things to myself, like reading out loud from a book or something, I find that my voice goes lower for spanish mm. but it goes higher for japanese so it's not even like you know my english voice is is at one tone and then my my foreign language voice is at another but i'm actually ending up picking different tones for, for different languages mm. which is interesting although as i say we'll we'll have to find out whether you know if i was actually to to talk spanish in conversation with someone whether that same issue with confidence that I talked about before with Japanese kicks in and I end up talking in a high-pitched voice after all. Mm. Uh, that has yet to be tested. So that, that while I'm on the subject of that, I just related backtracking a little bit to uh, New Year's resolutions. Yeah. At the time that we talked about it before, I hadn't actually really considered it. And I said at the time that I don't really, you know, I don't like to do New Year's resolutions just for the sake of it. Mm. And I prefer to do ones that I think I can achieve and have you know, specific, preferably fairly measurable goals. And often with some ulterior motive of like, this is the reason I'm doing this New Year's resolution. It's not just because of a New Year's resolution, but it's because of some other thing, right? Right. And so when we talked about it, I didn't really, I wasn't actually originally planning on doing a New Year's resolution that year. But since we were recording a podcast, I figured I had to say something. So I said, go to the gym once. <laughs> and now I've done it. Right. But I have thought of another one. Okay. And I think this is a better one which is that uh, later in the year, this this autumn, I am actually going to be going to Spain. Oh, wow. So as, as we've mentioned before, I was born in Spain and I haven't been 
back there for many, many years. I think I think over 10 years ago was the last time I went. Mm. But I was born in, in a town in the south called Marbella. And I'm going to be visiting there and then from there going up to Granada and, and to Cordoba. So getting a, you know, a few cities in the, in the south of Spain. Fantastic. And that seems like an opportunity to deal with what I've alluded to before. But I've almost had a bit of a complex about not being able to speak Spanish. Mm. I know it's you know, that's giving it too, too grand a term. But I grew up in Spain. But I went to an international school, so the main language at my school was English. And uh, my parents speak Spanish and my younger sister speaks Spanish. Mm. So everyone apart from me in my family speaks Spanish. Right. And, you know, when I, I studied it at GCSE, so it's not like I've, I've never done it. GCSEs for our American listeners are, are like owls in Harry Potter, uh, if that helps clear it up at all. <laughs> it may, maybe it helps for the American listeners, but what about for the for all the other listeners? What, what's the GCSE? In, I don't know what the American system is, but in my experience, most Americans know about the Harry Potter system, which which map fairly cleanly to the English system. Okay. So, <laughs> owls are like GCSEs, and newts are like A levels. So GCSEs are the general. You do about ten or twelve of them at about sixteen. Okay, and they're the sort of exams that you do that. Right. So I, I did study Spanish. Uh, I think I got a B. Uh, but I always had myself pegged, as I mentioned once before, as someone who wasn't very good at languages. Mm. And I only convinced myself that I could do it when I moved to Japan and, and learned Japanese. Right. And every now and then, even while I was in Japan, I've thought, oh, I really should go back and, and try and actually be able to speak Spanish. Mm. And every time I tried it in Japan, I knew quite a few people from Spanish-speaking countries in Japan. And I'd try and talk Spanish with them, but within minutes... I would not be able to think of a word and this uh, instinct that I had managed to train in myself to be able to like make time to try and think of the word in Japanese mm. kicked in. Uh. And so I just switched to Japanese accidentally. And right. then the rest of the conversation was in Japanese. So, <laughs> so I always sort of failed. So this year, here is a target. Yep. By the time I go to Spain, uh, which is in like uh, seven or eight months or something, mm. I would like to be able to at least hold a, a basic conversation comfortably without accidentally talking to them in Japanese or indeed in English. <laughs> is that resolution measurable? Like what is a basic well, conversation? That's well that's just it. It's not ideal as a resolution because it's not it's not really measurable. It's right. not like I would like to be able to pass this particular exam. And it's not like, like I'm that. going to go to a gym once this year and which you've already achieved. That's which I've already done. That's measurable. Right, yeah. <laughs> or, or once a week, which I'm not committing to, but would be measurable, right? Mm, right. This is less measurable, but it does have in its favor that it's got a specific deadline, which is, you know, when I go to Spain. Mm. And it's got a specific purpose, right? Mm. It, I, it's a thing I'm actually going to do. It's not some vague ambition. Right. So it's got that in its favor. I could set something more concrete like have passed this exam or have learned this many words whatever learned means put into anki or something right but i'm i'm not doing that because i don't i don't find those metrics particularly useful right for language learning the most useful even though it's not concrete or measurable 
the most useful sort of metric that I've found is if I talk to a random stranger in a bar, hmm. can we enjoy the conversation or is it awkward for both of us? <laughs> but doesn't that, doesn't that depend on the person? Because if it happens to be a very, very talkative, friendly, interesting person who's eager to talk to you regardless of your ability in the language, that's obviously going to go much better than somebody who's, you know, very, very uh, antisocial or quiet. Or... Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely true. Um, in order to get a, a good picture of it, I think you'd have to talk to a few people in bars right. and take the average. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. But so in terms of actual steps that I'm taking to try and do this, mm. uh, I've dialed the Greek right back because I can't, I was already really at the limit of, the amount of time I could afford to give to the Greek, mm. and I don't, I didn't have any more time to give to Spanish on top of that. Mm. So I've, I've reduced the Greek. I've not stopped it entirely. I'm introducing two new cards in Anki per day. I may even put that back down to one, even, mm. but just so that there's, there's a little drip. There's not like, because if you turn off the tap completely, then you know, when you want to start it back up again, you kind of feel like you've taken a lot of steps back. So I don't want to sort of lose everything I've done in the last year with Greek. Mm. But the, the the focus this year is going to be on the Spanish more than the Greek. So I'm, I'm going to be introducing one new card of Greek per day and then Anki will sort of keep me going with the stuff I've already learned. Mm. And with the Spanish, I've dialed that up to 10. So I'm I'm introducing 10 cards in Anki per day. And that's my that's my sort of regular, most measurable statistic. Sorry, I don't know that I don't know if we've covered this already, but what is Anki? Oh, okay. So yeah, I don't know. I think I mentioned it briefly when we were talking about language before, but maybe it's worth mentioning again. Anki is a piece of software which is essentially flashcard software. Right. So, you know, it makes cards, it shows you some question or sentence or something like that. Right. And then you press a button, shows you the back of the card, and you rate yourself on how well you did. I see. And that card could be a number of things, right? It could just be a very simple question with an answer on the back. And then if you've got the answer right, you rate yourself good. And if you've got the answer wrong, you rate yourself as fail. Or it could be a bit more nuanced than that. Mm. And there's a, there's a real science and an art to designing these cards, which maybe I'll talk, I'll talk about in a bit because there's, I, I think it's really interesting. Uh, then what happens is, based on how you rate yourself, it schedules when it is next going to show you that card. I see. So the, the thing that it offers over and above, like traditional actual physical flashcards, is that it can prioritize cards based on when it thinks it would be a good time to show them to you. Okay. So with a traditional flashcard system, you just randomly look at cards, and depending on where the dice roll, you may not, end up looking at a card a particular card for a year or something just because you never randomly drew it right and mm. so you might just totally forget what was on that card or you might end up looking at the same card every week despite the fact that you already totally know that thing so to try and avoid that from happening Anki tries based on your own rating of yourself to estimate when you are just about to forget the card forget the, the thing that the card is testing. I see. But won't have quite forgotten it because that's when they reckon is the, the most efficient time to show you. If they show you any sooner than that, then it's, no, it's not really a problem. 
it's just inefficient, right? You end up looking at more cards than you need to. Mm. If they show you later than that, then you've already forgotten the thing and you need to sort of relearn it. So the ideal time to show you would be the moment just before you forget it, but when it's still uh, sort of resident in your reasonably short-term memory. And then by keeping on sort of reminding you at that perfect time, it it ends up being sort of moving into longer and longer-term memory. That's the theory. Uh, obviously, es- judging the actual perfect time to show you mm. is impossible. So sometimes it, it gets it wrong. Sometimes it shows you earlier than it would need to, in which case you don't really notice, but you know you end up doing more cards. Sometimes it will show you later and you'll forget. So on average, if you're doing, say, or I, I tend to be scheduled about 70 or 80 cards per day at the moment, mm. and I might get about five of them wrong. So that means that some 6 or 7% of the cards that it is scheduled, it actually scheduled for me a little bit later than it should have. And if it had shown them to me a bit earlier, maybe I would have remembered them and I wouldn't have got them wrong. So this is primarily for learning vocabulary? I would say this is for... Well, it's very good for, for anything that involves rote learning. I see. Which might be vocabulary or it might be grammar, verb tables and things like that. Oh, I see. I see. But it's also good for exposure in a sense it doesn't stand on its own Mm. it's not it's not a silver bullet and you can't just say okay well if i put things in anki then that's all i need to do and so long as i go through my cards every day i will be fluent by x date (laughs) or something like that right uh you do need to support it with with other techniques which i'll I'll talk about a little bit in in a moment but in, term, in terms of what you actually put in Anki, you can put vocabulary, although I'm not a big fan of vocabulary taken out of context because you can sort of see a word and it gets mapped to some yeah. English word and it's not usually a direct mapping. So yeah. that, that can be a bit problematic. Right. Uh, another approach you can take with vocabulary, which is what I'm doing in Spanish, because I do, like I said, I, I have studied Spanish before. So I'm starting from a, a higher point than I did with Japanese or with greek right Uh, so i can already model through a lot of dictionary definitions of words in spanish Hmm. so a a type of card that i'm doing sometimes at the moment is to look up the take a word look up that word's definition in the royal academy of spain official dictionary right which is a spanish dictionary right it's like the Oxford English Dictionary for English. Okay. And if I understand that definition, then I'll put that on the card. Mm. And so I'll have, I actually generate two cards from that. So I'll put the word on the front and the definition on the back. And then when I see that, if I understood the word, then that's marked as a pass. And I'll also make the reverse version of that card. So the definition on the front, and I have to come up with the word. Right. Uh, so that that's just one way to kind of keep it in Spanish. Another thing that I do, that I actually do more of, which I think is good for giving you that context, is that I will take an entire sentence yeah. from some Spanish source. And then, depending on the sentence and, and the source, I might just put an English translation of that entire sentence on the back. Right. Or I might look up 
the particular words in that sentence that I didn't know that I had to look up mm. and do the same thing with the Spanish dictionary. Find the Spanish definition of that word and put that on the back. Right. And sometimes a mix. Sometimes I'll look up one word in a sentence and I'll look it up in the Spanish dictionary and understand the definition and go, okay, that, that I'll put that in. Sometimes I'll look it up in a Spanish dictionary and still have no idea what it means. Mm. And then I'll switch to an, a Spanish-English dictionary and I'll just paste the, the English definition in. So I'm quite, I'm quite flexible about that. Right. But the, the idea with those then is just, to, is just comprehension. So I don't make the reverse version of that. I don't have an English sentence and say, now produce the, the Spanish sentence. Mm. And the reason I don't do that is because there's usually many ways to express a particular thing. Right. So if you're shown an English sentence and you have to try and write it in Spanish, there's probably a variety of ways you could, you could write it. And so there's, I don't find those cards to be particularly useful. So I tend to go to focus on, on the recognition. Mm. Um, now, obviously, one, one thing with doing that is you need to find sentences, right? right? And if you want to be able to put the English translation of the sentence, you need to, you're either doing your own translations, in which case you need to be quite confident you're right, or you need to find a sentence which has um, English versions available. Mm. And I've actually found a couple of neat tricks recently to do this. Before I get to that, one, one thing that I've done in the past when I was doing Japanese is uh, I would take movies which were subtitled in both English and Japanese, mm. and I would use those as sources, and those are quite good because you can actually pull out the audio as well and right, include right. that. Yeah. Uh, but and another trick that I've realized recently that I tweeted, and I feel didn't get nearly as much uptake as it deserved. I was really pleased with this, and I got like one retweet. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think this should be people should be shouting this from the rooftops. This feels like a revelation. I'm just me. having a look for it now as you as you talk. <laughs> Here it is, right? Download the Kindle sample for a book that is available in both Spanish and English. Right. Download both samples. And the great thing about this is it's free for the sample, right? Right. And unless you're really advanced in the language, the length of a sample, which will usually be like the first chapter of the book or something, right. that's going to take you ages to get through if you're a relative beginner. So it, it'll last you, you get a lot of content for free. And then once you get to the sort of end of that, you can choose to buy it if you want to, or you can just download the sample for another book. So there's a whole wealth of bilingual, real sort of literary content available uh, on Amazon. So I, I, I'm just, I wish that was a, a thing that I thought of doing when I was first studying Japanese. But uh, yeah, that was, I was quite, quite pleased when I thought of that. So I'm currently going through a book which is originally written in English, actually. It's a book by Patrick Rothfuss called The Name of the Wind. And I've downloaded the, the Spanish version of that and the English version. And I've also downloaded the audiobook in Spanish. Mm. And I'm sort of just going through that and then making an Anki cards by taking the, the Spanish and the English versions and looking up any words that I don't know. Mm. And then in the background, just whenever I've got free time, I listen through the, the Spanish audiobook. And it's great if I... If I go back, so I, I listen through and obviously the audiobook overtakes how quickly I can go through and actually look up all the words and everything in the, in the written book mm. really quickly. So I end up running way ahead in the audiobook. But then occasionally, I'll, after I've got through like a chapter or something of the, of the written book, I'll go back and listen to that chapter again in the audiobook. And it's like night and day. It's so motivating and so great to listen back through something which I sort of half hazily understood the first time I listened to it. 
And then just a couple of weeks later, after having gone through this process and added all these cards to Anki and looked up all the words I didn't know and stuff like that, mm. just to be able to sort of the clarity that you get is really nice and quite motivating. Mm. So so that that's one of the main techniques I'm, I'm using at the moment. Your dedication to the academic side of learning a language and, of course, the practical side that comes with that and actually going out and trying to talk to people as well is is extremely admirable. And I would say that anybody out there who's thinking about learning a language, you know, this is the this is a fine example of the passion and the enthusiasm that will actually get you there to actually learning a language on your own. I'm reminded a bit of when I was a language teacher in Japan, when I first got to Japan. Japanese people have an interesting approach to learning language, which is often not helpful for them in some ways. And it's not their fault. It's just that you know, Japanese education is so centered around rote learning and memorization and basically, yeah, like the flashcard style of learning things where you have one thing and you need to remember what it is in another thing mm. that uh, in a lot of cases I can remember Japanese language learners would get into a situation where their academic knowledge far surpassed their actual practical ability because right. they had so much in there that when it actually came to a practical situation where they're put on the spot and they have to actually use some of that memorized knowledge, it mm. the, the famous uh, expression that most people used was atamaga mashiro ninaru, which means my my mind just goes blank. Right, and there's like so much, there's so many words packed in there that they've successfully memorized. And if they're looking at a flashcard, they can tell you, oh, in English that's this. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to actually being on the spot and producing it it it's just it's like a you know there's so much baggage just so much weight and it's, it's hard for right. them to, to be nimble with thinking about how they should react to a situation right and one of the core pieces of advice that i can remember that we used to give from the company that i used to work at it's really rather than learning vocabulary we're well, learning vocabulary is very very key after a certain point but before that point learning expressions and learning full sentences. Yes. Not not in order to produce okay, so you know, we it was often misunderstood that, oh, in order to use this sentence, I need to be in exactly the situation where I where this sen sentence is relevant. Right, right. And if not, I can't use it. And that's of course ridiculous because, you know, if you have an expression like excuse me, may I have the bill, please? Right. You know, of course, uh, there'll be situations where you just can't use that and or situations where it's not quite right to be saying, excuse me, can I have the bill, please, depending on, on whatever uh, um, whatever the context is. But the construction of that sentence, excuse me, is one block. Right. Can I have the bill, please? You know, that, that construction right. will then allow you to replace those word parts with other things to, to create your sentence eventually. Right, but yeah, yeah, like that's that notion of sort of sentence patterns, mm. where just a few common patterns. That if you can produce those patterns without even having to think, then you only have to think about the almost the variables, right? The, right. the things, the words you replace in the appropriate slots that's in right. the pattern. Yeah, but it's really, really key that uh, the one piece of advice I can remember giving very frequently is that you must match your study technique with the actual practical application of the language that you're aiming for right so if your goal is to be able to talk to people then you've got to talk to people yes and that's very it sounds obvious but when you're learning english in japan 
uh, and there's actually very few opportunities to talk to anybody in English. Right. It's not that easy, right. you know. And it's easy to think that the the English industry, like pretty much any industry in Japan, mm. it's flooded with products and and you know services and you know thousands of ways to spend your money on the idea of learning English. Mm. But sadly, you know, the actual real opportunity to be challenged in an English conversation is very, very rare. And that's not just the problem with – not problem. That's not just a characteristic with Japan. That's any country with any language, really. Right. English in Europe is perhaps a, a slightly different situation because so many people can speak it. But uh, in Japan, that's certainly the case, that people would be easily distracted by spending their money on tools in order to help their academic learning of English. So learning all of this vocabulary or studying all of this grammar, however – you know, without the actual, their goal was to right. speak to right. somebody in English because they're not able to actually practice that. It's basically the equivalent yeah. of, you know, trying to learn tennis by buying tennis magazines and buying rackets and buying tennis balls and learning everything that there is about the motion of the tennis arm and, you know, the angle of impact and all of that, but not actually getting out there on the court. Right. Yeah. No, that is true. And I, I want to be clear about what I'm trying to do, all this talk about Anki and sentences and, and mining things out of Kindle books and things like that, that ideally would be a minor part of the study. Mm. That, as I've said before, I give about 30 to 40 minutes a day to this Anki program, which I do in the morning on the bus on the way to work. Mm. So just before my day has even really started, I try and get the, the whole thing out of the way. Mm. And so that is not intended to form the, the majority of my efforts with Spanish or with Japanese as it was before. I see. Uh, the other two important things, essentially, are input and output, right? right? Input being listen to audiobooks, listen to radio, watch TV, uh, and output being talk. And sometimes you can even combine the two in what's called a conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that was a big part of what I did in Japan. Mm. Before I went to Japan, I loaded up on input. So I watched hundreds of hours of, of dramas and anime and things like that. Mm. And then when I went there, I actually got into talking to people and trying to exercise the conversation side of things quite quickly, mm. uh, which I also think was very, very helpful because it builds up instincts like what you said with the, the sentence patterns they need to that's what you really need to sort of feel is like an instinctive thing that you can just blurt out and then that buys you time to to think of the things that you're going to fill in the the gaps with mm. and that only that only comes with practice now with spanish i'm obviously not in spain and so i'm i'm trying to think what i can do to to get practice in, in spoken spanish mm. There is a service which I've discovered recently, which is called italki.com. Right. I-T-A-L-K-I, I think. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. I haven't tried it out yet, but it's essentially like an Akaiwa, like a, a conversation practice service. Or they do have professional teachers as well. Mm. They've got like, it's multi-tier. So f for free, you can do language exchange where you meet people and you swap back and forth between your language and their language. Mm. Uh, for a small fee you can do like a conversation class where you connect to an amateur speaker of the target language, mm. i.e. a native speaker of the target language, but not a qualified teacher. Right. And 
you're only talk. you know, well, you, you sort of choose, uh, you don't owe them anything because you're paying them, right? So right. Uh, you don't have to talk in your language if you don't want to, you can, you know, and you can ask them questions and things like that. And then for a higher fee, you can actually connect with an actual teacher and they, they will have lesson plans and, and things like that that they plan, they'll teach you. So I'm thinking of trying that out in the, in the mid-range one because I don't really want, you know, I, I like to set my own course. So I'm, I don't really feel like I want a, a proper teacher at this stage. But I also, I don't really want to do the conversation exchange. So there's that. Uh, and that's usually like an hour once or twice a week. Mm. Still not as good as being able to just go out to the pub which is what I did in Japan mostly and and other social situations. Mm. But it's a start. Well, now the other possibility. Mm. Oh, sorry. What were you? I was going to say. I was just going to say that uh, you're in a great country for opportunities to speak Spanish, though. Right. Well, that's the other thing, and it, and a great state of a great country. In in California, there's obviously a lot of native Spanish speakers. Mm. Different kind of Spanish to what I'm used to because it's it's Latin American Spanish and not not european spanish but you know they they like american english and english english as far as i can tell they're totally mutually intelligible so right uh, not so bad there is a bit of a funny thing here though i haven't found i haven't quite got a good feeling about uh, about where i can go and where it's appropriate and and so forth but hmm. i don't feel comfortable just talking to someone in spanish here even if spanish is their first language in the same way that i would doing the same thing in Spain. Mm. And there's there's a lot of very complicated issues I- involved with that uh, and complicated American politics with the Spanish-speaking world, mm. especially at the moment. But, you know, in Japan, a lot of particularly native English speakers get annoyed with Japanese people when they try and talk to them in English and they feel like they're being racist. You must have encountered that right a lot lot of Hmm. uh, i'm sure a lot of people that we know have have this sort of idea in the head that that if a japanese person sort of defaults to speaking to them in english Hmm. then they're assuming that they can't speak japanese and they're you know uh, and it's insulting. Mm, yeah, I, I've, uh, I know what you mean. I've never actually experienced that myself for a number of reasons. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Right. I've heard of that. But, and I, I have experienced it, but I personally don't get particularly annoyed by it. Right. You know, I, I sort of understand it to some extent. And depending on the person and what their attitude is, you know, they may genuinely be, you know, like taking your advice when you were an English teacher and saying, okay, I'm going to go out and, and have some conversation practice. Right. So, you know, want to help them out in that sense. But uh, there, there's definitely some people that that get really annoyed by it. Right. And there are some situations where it is genuinely annoying, right? There are some situations where somebody speaks very bad English and they are maybe serving you in a train station or a restaurant or something and they just refuse to engage in Japanese, even though they don't understand what you're saying in English. And then when you try and say it in Japanese, you know, they, you know, they, they, that can be an annoying situation. I feel like there's a bit of a similar attitude here sometimes mm. that if you talk Spanish to some people here, they get a bit 
sensitive mm. and start saying, you know, we speak English too. <laughs> I see. Um, and it, uh, you know, it's a bit delicate. Uh, I see. I, I see. What, I see. I see now. Yeah, I understand now. You, you see what I mean? Like, yeah. and it's not, this is not everyone by any means. Mm. And I think there's a, a way around it. You know, I think if you can be respectful and make it clear that it's like, you don't think you're doing them a favor by talking to them in Spanish. Right. But you're asking them to help you. Yeah. And you're being very upfront about that. Yeah, you wouldn't. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that the people might think that it's a comment that basically their English is not good enough. So now you need to try and speak Spanish badly for them. Right. Like, even if they're native, even if they've lived here their whole lives and they're actually a perfect native speaker of English. Right. But just because they also speak Spanish or they are from a Hispanic background or whatever that you're sort of, uh, that you think you have to talk down to them in Spanish or something like that. Yeah. It's just a slightly sensitive issue that I am aware exists. Right. And I don't, I'm not yet well attuned enough to it to be able to feel comfortable judging the situation. Yeah. I'm sure like in, in your location, you probably wouldn't want to just go into a bar and 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 just kind of try and strike up a conversation with somebody who you hear is speaking Spanish. I mean, obviously, right. uh, like in your situation, it would be much more sensible to go to, for example, to a, I don't know, like a community center or something like that and say, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to practice Spanish. Is there some way to arrange like an exchange program or just where that it's understood that, as you said, that uh, they are doing you a favor by helping you practice your Spanish. Right. Just so that that, that, relationship and that understanding is completely clear from the beginning and it's clearly for the purposes of language learning right uh, for, for your language learning um yeah you'd want to make sure that that understanding is firmly in place i'm sure yeah so that's something i need to to look up I, as you say like a community center or maybe even the local library yeah there's library. probably resources all, all over the place um obviously i'm a child of the uh the 21st century at this point and i'm used to doing everything on the internet so actually being able to connect to native speakers from spain mm. which is you know the spanish i'm used to is almost easier because i can just do it from my own home <laughs> right 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 <laughs> uh but it, it would be worthwhile to try and make some connections with the spanish-speaking community here because obviously that's <laughs> it's much more convenient and uh, mm. and much more real as well you know actually talking to people face to face in in real life so if that's something i haven't looked into yet but have you thought about um because i know that um and also listeners of the show will also know that uh, you are um very experienced and very enthusiastic and very passionate about dancing have you thought about uh that avenue for example finding perhaps um getting into flamenco or things like that where there's like uh yeah you know more of a likelihood that, that you're going to find connections where you can say, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm really eager to learn some Spanish. Is there a way that... Uh, yeah. Um, or eager to, to practice Spanish, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if listeners of Station 13 are aware because I'm not sure if we've mentioned it. Oh, really? But, uh, well, maybe we haven't. Uh, well, whatever. Anyway, uh, yes, I I dance Argentine tango. That was a thing that I did in England before I moved to Japan. And then when I moved to Japan, it was a really good way of meeting people mm. and of being able to practice my Japanese precisely because there was no pressure to yeah. continue an awkward conversation. Yeah. Like if if I was talking and the other person didn't really understand or if, you know, the conversation was running a bit dry because we were running out of topics that I could express. You just dance. Or you could just say, <laughs> oh, well, shall we dance? <laughs> and then leave it there, right? Yeah. So it was a good way to yeah. sort of, it was a, a, good, a good way to be amongst Japanese speakers, yeah, 
but without feeling like I'm annoying them the whole time with my inability to speak. Yeah, right? so it, was, it was a really good good way to sort of... Here, I have been a few times to, to Tango in this area. It's much bigger here mm. than it was in Kansai. Right. So there's the, the place that we go, there's, I don't know, 100 or 200 people there most times. And those people come from all sorts of countries and all sorts of walks of life. Tango is originally in... in a dance from Argentina, obviously. So that's a native Spanish-speaking country. Right. So there's, there's definitely potential there. Although I wouldn't say that even the majority of the people going are actually from Argentina or a Spanish-speaking country. No, of course. Yeah, tango, I was thinking less than flamenco, which flamenco, at least to my knowledge, mm. tango to me seems more common and more popular than flamenco no is that totally wrong i would say i'm not really sure but certainly around here i would think that tango is more popular than than flamenco and less popular than salsa right so also tango and salsa are both dances that you do as you know in couples mm. whereas flamenco more often than not is is more of a solo or a group thing but mm. less sort of one-on-one except for like Sevillanas and things but yeah I thought of flamenco only because of the the connection obviously with European Spanish and uh right yeah anyway we'll see how it goes I'm just I'm just getting started with this thing uh building up the Anki cards to sort of get myself a foundation and then looking for ways to to introduce some actual real practice Mm. into my life which may be a, a few regular italki sessions or it may involve finding some some community here where I can practice but Best of luck. Thank you. Yes. I'll I'll keep you updated.